0: We're here in the third part on election and predestination. And we're looking at Genesis 25:23 as our springboard into this particular topic. We are dealing now with reprobation, but we begin by reading the scriptures. And the Lord said to her, "Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other." The older shall serve the younger. God himself had told Rebekah that he had two peoples in her womb. Jacob, who was the chosen one over Esau. And when we deal with election and predestination, as we saw in Romans chapter 9 and the manner in which Paul deals with interpreting these Old Testament texts, foundational to the entire understanding of what salvation is all about, you cannot have election without the negative, reprobation. It's double or nothing. What is reprobation? Well, let's go back and be reminded first of what is Election. The eternal, free, unchangeable purpose of God, whereby in Jesus Christ he chooses for himself those with whom he is pleased out of all mankind, determining to bestow upon them for his sake grace here and everlasting happiness hereafter, for the praise of his glory by the way of mercy. It has nothing to do, this election, has nothing to do with anything we do, or think, or say, or choose, or decide. It is based wholly upon God alone and his counsel from all eternity. As we saw, Romans 9, 1-13 exemplified the election of Jacob over Esau. Not that the twins had done anything good or evil. They had not said anything. They had not thought anything. They had not chosen anything. They had not decided anything. But then the question remains, if Jacob is elect and God's pleasure is upon him in the hereafter as well as here, what then happens to Esau? Well, now we look at what reprobation is, the fancy theological word for the negative of election. It's an active or activity that God determines to happen. It's not simply a passing over, as if since God simply chose Jacob, he then passes by Esau. There is a sense in which he does do that. However, after dealing with the idea, the doctrines of God's electing grace in Jesus Christ, we have to contemplate the misery of those as we'll say, eternally bound by God for hell. These people the Bible calls reprobates. Reprobation is not emphasized as much as election in the Bible in so many words, although for every one verse in the Bible concerning salvation, there are three verses in the Bible concerning judgment. That means that judgment is Hell, heaven, election, reprobation are important themes. It's the reality of coming judgment. Reprobation, though, still takes a back seat to the doctrine of election. It's comparatively something that we do have to study, even though God emphasizes his love, mercy, and grace more than he does his wrath and justice to the wicked in hell he emphasizes his love mercy and grace more to his elect all through the scriptures than he does his wrath and justice to the wicked because the bible is not the bible is not a note to the wicked although it is applied and applicatory to them but rather it's much like a love letter sent from god to his elect children so it emphasizes his love mercy and grace more that by no means assumes that wrath, justice, and the like are not those things that God enjoys executing or are not part of his character. To be just, to do righteously, are things that God enjoys doing. They most certainly are things that God enjoys. But, In the entire scope of man's fall and misery, God certainly has underscored election more than he has underscored reprobation. And as we attempt to act as good stewards of God's word, we do find this teaching strewn throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as we've seen already just with Jacob and Esau. It therefore ought to be part of the whole counsel of God that we teach and preach, and shame on the pastors out there who don't take up election and reprobation. We should not neglect it. I fear more neglect this doctrine than teach it. Even in Jesus' own teaching, 13% of what he taught surrounded death death hell, judgment, and eternal reprobation. 13%. Which means in thinking in a humanistic term, if you were the Son of God coming to earth, and you had six things to say to humankind, what would you say? One of those six things was death, hell, judgment, and eternal reprobation. That's what we find in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let's then define reprobation. Reprobation is the predestination of certain men so that the glory of God's justice may be shown in them. Now, I think that particular definition is not as complete as I'd like it. So I'd like to use Turretin's more pregnant definition, and his definition of reprobation is, and I quote, "...the eternal and unchangeable and most free purpose of God by which he decreed not to pity some certain men lying in exactly equal corruption and guilt with others, but to damn eternally those left in sin on account of it, in order to demonstrate his glorious justice, liberty, and power. Now in listening to this, rewind and listen to that again. But we're going to break it down. First... Reprobation is the eternal and unchangeable and most free purpose of God. In sealing the fate of Herod and Pontius Pilate, we read in Acts 4.28, Herod and Pontius Pilate did whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand should happen. They fulfilled God's purpose. The determination of God's eternal counsel led these men to slay the Christ. But that was God's purpose. It was not that God tempted them and they were enticed to it, but that the situation God had ordained for them stirred their already corrupted vices and drew them away to commit wickedness before God. First Kings 20 and verse 42 uses the Hebrew word cherem, which means appointed to, and listen to what it says. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life. As it is in the Old Testament, so in First Thessalonians 5, 9, God is said to have tithemi, or appointed some to wrath. Quote, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is immutable, which we'll discuss later, but simply means that he does not change, he does not change his eternal decrees. The appointment of men to wrath, if they are appointed to it, can never increase, and it can never diminish. So, if election is the saving of a definite number of certain men, then the rest, those not elect to eternal life, have been predestined for eternal torment. That is God reprobating them for all eternity, based on his divine counsel. Those which God has not been pleased to elect are positively reprobated by God's will, They are those by which he decreed not to pity some certain men, as Turretin says. Some men are not pitied. Some men are pitied. The Bible speaks about different ways that we are to interpret the senses that explain to us different things that go on. For example... When we deal with God's divine counsel, we're talking about what the scriptures, or in theology, what we mean to say the compound sense. There's the divided sense, such as when we stand before a bunch of trees, we cannot see the forest for the trees. But then there is the compound sense, in which, as if we were traveling in a helicopter, we could see the entire forest. Well, when we deal with God's divine counsel, we're looking at that picture in which God gives us that he has decreed some to be elected for eternal life and some to be predestined or reprobated for eternal torment. Remember, we're dealing with the eternal decree of God from before the foundation of the world. We're not dealing with the realm of how that decree plays out in the eyes of men. Nobody walks around with an E on their forehead and an R on their forehead. We can't go around and we can't see who's elect and who's reprobate. We can only go by certain aspects of their life and their testimony and their witness and their holiness and the fruit that's demonstrated in their life, whether one is a good tree or a bad tree. So we're dealing here specifically not with what we see with our eyes, but what we see in terms of the Bible's teaching of God's eternal decree. Some men, like Esau, are fashioned and formed in this way. Now, this non-pity or fashioning in the reprobate sense is called hardening in the Bible. Joshua 11.20 says, "...for it was the Lord who hardened their hearts." that they should come against Israel. The evil Pharaoh is often cited as one whom God hardened as a result of his eternal decree. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I, that is God, I will harden his heart, and he shall not let the people go. Exodus 4.21 The idea is also stated in Exodus 7.3, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in 14.4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in 14.17, And behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Now we see, Pharaoh is not exclusively hardened, but all the Egyptians were hardened. This doesn't mean that God entered into the heart of Pharaoh and created sin there, but it does mean that through God's providence, he created circumstances which fulfilled his purpose for Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh would willingly corrupt himself and harden his heart. It could very well be that God would have created circumstances that would have softened Pharaoh's heart instead of hardening, but that was not God's purpose. Exodus 8.15 says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. And Exodus 9.34 reiterates this with, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So sometimes the eternal decree of God is enhanced as it plays out in a person's life. Yes, God has so ordered the circumstances that Pharaoh would harden his own heart. It's attributed to God's circumstance that I will harden his heart. Yet, the secondary means by which these things take place are that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And we know God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his glory, which we went over in Romans 9.13 but we also see the outworking of that explicit hardening in the life of Pharaoh through the historical narrative. We know that certain men are chosen for election, a definite number, since God has created them for this purpose. As Proverbs 16.4 plainly shows us, "...the Lord hath made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil." Even the wicked, God has fashioned as the potter. He has taken the circumstances surrounding these people's lives, and he has so fashioned them in such a way as to allow them to harden their own hearts further and clearly seared, as Paul says, so that ultimately God's purpose will come to pass for his glory, and that is their utter damnation. Which is why Romans fourteen nine fourteen states, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So then, it is not of man who wills, or him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my might shall be seen throughout all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whomever he hardens, he shall harden. Now, Paul at this point, as we already discussed, he brings up a question. You will say unto me, Why does he still find fault? Shall the thing who formed say to him which formed it, Why did you make me this way? Hath not the power, hath not the potter, power, over the clay of the same lump to make a vessel unto honor and one for dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, endured with patience the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So, the potter fashions the clay from the exact same lump of humanity. Some will be vessels of grace, and some will be vessels of wrath. The potter has the right to do this. The potter is the potter. He is the one who takes the clay and forms it. He is the one that so molds the circumstances and so effectuates the power of the regenerating power of the Spirit in one or not. The point I want to make is that God is the one who shapes and molds these vessels. As a necessary deduction, both from this and the doctrine of election, a definite and certain number of men are assigned as vessels of wrath. Out of mankind, a certain number of them will be actively reprobated. Well, the next question is, how does God damn men? How does God damn men? God does not elect them to grace, and thus they are consigned to hell for all eternity to suffer in unspeakable torment under the wrath of God. Hell is the spiritual and material furnace of fire where its victims are exquisitely tortured in their minds and in their bodies eternally according to their various capacities. By God, the devils and damned humans, including themselves, in their memories and consciences as well as in their raging unsatisfied lusts, from which place of death God's saving grace, mercy, and pity are gone forever, never for a moment to return. In looking at all of the writings of Jonathan Edwards, we find that this definition is built out of much of what he did in putting together ideas concerning the wrath of God. So we find that here God sends these people into eternal torment, sends them in, does not give them grace, does not give them pity, does not give them mercy and by their sin it is that which they are judged. In the determined act of his will, God leaves men in their sin and sends them to hell to glorify him. Their sin is that which judges them. They act according to their nature. They are rebels before God. and continue to fill up the measure of their sins until God's appointed time when he recalls their lives to judgment. They are then judged on account of sin. On account of their sin. As our definition started, but to damn eternally those left in sin on account of it. Remember that God does not damn innocent creatures. He predetermines to leave them in their sin but damns them according to their works. The theological idea behind this word is preteration. He preterates them from all eternity. They are seen as those pre-damned as a result of their wickedness. This continual leaving of them in their sin is the measure by which they store up the wrath of God. Even in the teaching of Christ, Jesus uses parables to hide the kingdom from some. And he uses it, that hidden technique, to bestow it upon others. Luke 8.10 says, Unto you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. And you can also cross-reference that with Matthew 11.25. They... Remain in unbelief, because God does not give them grace to change. He actively damns them. But their unbelief, because he has not regenerated them, because he has not sent his spirit to save them, their unbelief is a consequence of reprobation, not a cause of it. It's not their unbelief that causes God's eternal counsel to damn some. That is simply a consequence of what reprobation is all about. As a result of them being reprobate, remember, nothing they say, nothing they do, nothing they think, nothing they acted out, nothing that they thought of beforehand... Their unbelief is a consequence of reprobation. They continue in unbelief and they continue in hardness of heart and God's wrath builds up against them like a bank account that continues to gain interest and their guilt then is compounded as a result. Why does God damn some and not others? Well, the Bible gives us but one answer to that question. The Bible tells us that the potter does this for his glory. Those that he damns, he damns as a result of His glory. Thus, in order to demonstrate His glorious justice, liberty, and power, as Tarantin's definition states, God's glory is His chief end. And the last lecture in this particular series is going to deal simply with that thought. The chief end of the existence of men is for the glory of God, either in election or reprobation. Men are reprobated as a result of God's will, in God's good pleasure, that God's justice may be seen in all its effulgent glory. And God takes pleasure in his character shining forth in every way that it shines, which also includes damning some people. Now God does take pleasure in administering justice and judgment. Jeremiah 9.24 is God's own testimony to this. Let's hear what it says. Quote, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Now listen to what he says. Here's the commentary. Here's God's own commentary on what he does throughout the earth and in the earth. For in these things, what things? Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. God delights in loving-kindness. Well, no one would dispute that. He delights in righteousness. This is a fact also that few would argue. But he also delights in judgment. The glory of his being, which includes his justice, shall be glorified in some men of the world in hell. Who could say that God does not have the very hearts of men in the palm of his hand? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it, whithersoever he will. Proverbs twenty-one one. Even the kings of the earth are under his sovereign control. Some will glorify his love and mercy, but some will be judged for their sins and glorify his wrath. And you can check on your own, John 12.40, Romans 11.5, Romans 11.7-8, and Romans 11.28 all talk about the same idea. We see then that reprobation is as much a part of the will of God as election. And we must remember that in preaching the expression of God's will should encompass both doctrines and each should be given their due weight. Though Turretin's definition was more formal and distinct after sort of serving the basics of this doctrine we can then appreciate why william ames in his very simple definition says this reprobation is the predestination of certain men so that the glory of god's justice may be shown in them simple and to the point now the scriptures deal with this particular idea extensively romans 1:28 and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Second Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except that you are reprobate. Second Timothy 3.8 Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Titus 1.16 They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. In our main passage, the springboard of Genesis 25:23, is a picture of a formation and struggle because of God's mercy and wrath in Rebekah's womb. Because of God's mercy and wrath, in and of itself, there was a formation of a struggle between Jacob and Esau. God did it all out of his own will, apart from anything the twins said or did, good or evil, willing or running. John 17.12 says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave to me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture would be fulfilled. The idea of perdition here, apolia, is destruction or waste, of utter destruction, of perishing, of the destruction which consists of eternal misery in hell. Judas, the son of damnation, was created and raised up for the very purpose of fulfilling the scriptures that he would betray Christ and ultimately be lost. Jesus even says, it would have been better if he had not even been born judas's purpose on earth was to be created to betray christ and to fulfill the already written scripture about him second peter 2 12 and 13 but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. The word made here refers to the creative activity of God, to be begotten this way, to be made this way. In Jude, verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God, in our Lord Jesus Christ. This ordained word is prographo, of old, set forth, or designated beforehand in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Isaiah 28.13 But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Jeremiah 6.30 People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Luke 13.24 Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. John 10.26-27 and 27, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I told you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Romans eleven seven and 8. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day second thessalonians two eleven to twelve and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness 1 kings twenty two nineteen to twenty three and this is a, an extraordinary verse. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now, that's an amazing verse. The Lord himself sent out a lying spirit so that the circumstances surrounding Ahab would fall a certain way, and so he would be deceived. Now, was his deception... Something that God created in his own heart? No. That was what Ahab did. But God so ordered the circumstances that there could be no other thing but that particular line. Matthew thirteen ten eleven, 11. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Very to the point, very plain. Jesus teaches... Reprobation teaches the blindness that God sends, the delusion that God sends, that people would believe a lie, that they would be blinded, that the kingdom would be hidden, that these evildoers were created in such a way as for the day of judgment. The scriptures are replete over and over again with information regarding reprobation. But not only is it Helpful, so to speak, for us to speak about reprobation in general, but we should also apply it. Why God damns? Why does he do that? Demonstrating his glory? Yes. But why reprobation? What is it that determines one vessel for wrath and another for mercy? I mean, these men are all lying in exactly equal corruption and guilt with others, There's not something especially wicked or more wicked about one than another. Although some men are more wickedly acting than one than another, they are simply chosen this way. All men are fallen in Adam. Adam was our representative head. And as our federal or representative head, all men are fallen in him. Whatsoever Adam did in the garden, thus all men so were accounted for. They were credited with his disobedience. And as a result of being credited in such a way, their sinfulness simply compounds the already massive and hell-damning condemnation that rests on them, because they are accounted as unrighteous already. Their sin simply aggravates that unrighteousness and makes them worse. And not only are they damned, but they're damned more. And some are damned less, and some are damned more. And there are degrees in the doctrine of hell, not something we're going to get into now, but there are degrees to such damnation. But God has from all eternity so deemed a certain number, a specific number, of these people to hell to glorify him in his justice. And it's not unfair that all men deserve to suffer the wrath of God. It is not unfair or unjust for the potter to save some and not others. And it is not unfair for the potter to choose certain ones over others. All men lie equally miserable in sin. And all men qualify for damnation unless the potter's grace is seen in their life. They are all condemned equally. Hell is hell. Little sins or greater sins, hell is still hell. Some will receive more torment, and it will be worse for them. But a little hell or a lot of hell makes little difference. Psalm 5.5 The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Not the work that the iniquitous do, but he hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11.5 The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Again, them. God hates them. Psalm 7.11-13 God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not... He will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordains his arrows against the persecutors. God ordains these things and hates these people. Hosea 9.15 All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings I will drive them out of mine house, I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters, and even speaking about the people in this particular verse. Nahum one two, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. James four four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? Why are some damned and others not? God in and of himself determines for his own glory how those things will take place. But God hates sin. And in an applicatory manner, even for us, we, God's elect, should be thinking how much more should we think about the sins that we commit when we know, lest it be except for God's grace, that we could be counted among those who were damned. How much more obedience should we render as a result of following the Master? Well, that is an overview of reprobation. And in thinking about reprobation, we should always think completely about God's ordained plan. We cannot simply think about election. It's double or nothing. Election and reprobation come from God's eternal counsel, and it's impossible to deny it. And all of the scriptures that I quoted in this brief time of studying reprobation, and again, very brief, the scriptures have many more things to say concerning it. And you, listener should take the time to look through not only the love and the mercy and the grace of God, but you should be moved to certain actions as a result of studying reprobation. Maybe you would be a little bit more bold in your witness as a result of realizing the horrible future that awaits the reprobate. Maybe you would act a little differently in the manner of your speech with your friend next door, or the person at work, or your family who may not be saved. In any case, whether you're the preacher who should be preaching election and reprobation, or whether you are the witness demonstrating your witness to the world, the doctrine of reprobation can be very helpful to us in understanding, as Romans so lays out, how God deals with the wicked, and thus how it should humble us that we could have been among the damned, and yet by his grace he has saved us. Why me and not Harry? Why you and not Sally? We might never know the answer to that. However, let us be exceedingly grateful that God has so chosen us and has so elected us.